There's a stereotype that people have about what anger looks like and feels like and how it's caused, but the actual instances are highly variable. Sometimes when you're angry, you feel unpleasant, but sometimes you feel pleasant. Sometimes when you're angry, your blood pressure goes up, but actually sometimes it goes down. It all depends on the action that you're taking because your physiology is linked to your physical movements. And the physical movements you make in anger depend on the situation. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emergent field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners once again. Please continue rating us on your favorite platform and tell your friends about the show. And keep in touch with us in case you want to know something else or uh, have suggestions for new guests. Today, we have Lisa Feldman Barrett joining us. Lisa is among the top 1% of the most cited scientists in the world. She is the University Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Northeastern University in Boston and holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital. Her research focuses on how the human brain, in continual conversation with the human body and the world, regulates the body and creates mental events, such as episodes of emotion. Among her many accomplishments, uh, Dr. Barrett has testified before the Congress, presented her research to the FBI, consulted to the National Cancer Institute, and even appeared on Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. In 2017, she released the book How Emotions Are Made, followed in 2020 by Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Her popular TED Talk has been viewed over six million times. So, Lisa... Normally, obviously, when I meet someone, I say, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, you obviously, uh, you have a deep amount of insight into what it means when we ask ourselves how we're feeling. So if I say, how are you feeling? What do you, as an expert in sort of this field of emotion, what process do you go through? Are you the same as everyone else? Or, or, or do you have a sort of a more introspective, more thorough way of answering that question? Well, I usually uh, want to know, are you actually authentically asking me how I am? <laughs> are you, do you just, are you just looking for the perfunctory? I'm fine. You know, so is that a real question or is that just like a greeting? That's fair. So let's say it's a real question. Ah, well, I suppose I take it more introspectively, but you know, I tend to use, I try to use emotion words. I try to, it's not just the use of words. This is something actually that people confuse in our work. It's not just how you use words. It's really how you're constructing and wielding categories. So I would usually try to categorize in that instance, my sense data, the sense data that I'm perceiving in a way that I think is useful for the conversation. So just to give you an example, you know, my daughter, when I, right before COVID, I was in New Zealand and I um, was, she was flying over for spring break. She often would meet me for spring break where I was. I was in New Zealand working and I was trying to figure out whether I needed to meet her at the airport and turn around and come home or whether we could actually have a vacation. Cause at that point, no one knew that the pandemic was a pandemic or at least it hadn't been announced. Mm. Um, and so I called my husband, her dad, and I said, I'm feeling very high arousal and it's very unpleasant. And I was deliberately not categorizing it as anxiety. I was deliberately attempting to experience uncertainty 
because that's actually a more useful experience in terms of the behavior that it dictates than anxiety. So I was trying to forage for information, not treat my discomforting arousal as like uh, a sign to withdraw. So I guess, Charles, it would depend on what you were expect, what I thought you were expecting from the interaction or what I felt like giving. Okay, so I want to jump in into our first question here. Uh, so Lisa, we start with questions about wisdom uh, in the podcast name. And so the first question that we always ask people is, so wisdom can mean a lot of different things. And uh, what does it mean to you? If you think about wisdom, um, what, do, what do you think uh, does it represent? I think wisdom is many things at, at many different times. And that's not just because people disagree, but I think most categories, most psychological categories have instances that are highly variable to each other. And and I can explain more about what I mean, but but that's something that's important. And I think one aspect of wisdom that is overlooked is knowing when not to categorize something and not to make meaning of it and to just be curious about it. You know, it like I was saying to you about my this instance, uh, you know, uh, in New Zealand, I wasn't just playing around with words. I was attempting to construct an experience that I thought would be useful in that situation. And I sometimes, you know, the best emotion regulation you can have is to not actually construct an emotion, is to construct something else, some other kind of experience. I'm speaking about this like very deliberately, but it's just something that you can train yourself to do automatically because that's what your brain is doing all the time automatically anyways it's constructing experiences by making meaning of signals and so sometimes wisdom is knowing enough to know that you don't know something and being curious instead and trying to learn something new instead that's fascinating so like a little bit of intellectual humility and then letting it go or letting it pass something I very think curiosity and humility yeah. are are very overlooked in our field mm-hmm. frankly and they <laughs> Even in in uh, culture, in our larger cultural context. Uh, what do you think about morality with respect to wisdom? Necessary, unnecessary, something completely separate? I think in principle, you'd want them to be related, but in practice, they probably aren't. And what I mean by that is, there's always more, really, there's always more than one, well, maybe not always more, but there's often more than one moral answer to something, depending on what you're prioritizing. You know, you'd want them to be related, but they might not always be related in the way that you're, for the more, for the, for the moral value that you particularly um, have at a, at a given time. So, you know, the person's <laughs> decision might might favor some other moral outcome that's not your per- preferred one, which makes it which makes them look independent to you. Right. So, like, a, so often kind of a little bit of a a balancing act because they, those moral values, like in the trolley dilemma, itself and in conflict with each other, and like how do you how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, life is filled with moral conflicts, big and yeah. small. You know, like you go to the supermarket and you stand in front of you know display of bananas and you know one is cheap and the other is more expensive and you know that's a moral decision that you're making there but it's not a single moral decision there are a whole bunch of moral decisions like who picked them how old were they you know where does it come from how much shipping is involved if there was one thing you could encourage people to do to help them make wiser decisions what might that be 
I would have said off the cuff, I would say just be, you know, remain curious. That's the main curiosity and humble, not to keep coming back to this over and over again, but I do actually think it's, um, but you can't always do that when you're, you have to make a decision quickly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of things that I try to do are things like for, for serious, uh, decisions that have serious impact or out- outcomes. I usually try to imagine the counterfactuals. I might try to imagine what I'm likely to regret the most when I'm 80. That's a big one for me, actually, not just because I'm turning 60 this year, but because I've always actually thought that way. Like I always have always, tr- I mean, as since I've been an adult and have can remember um, what, how I make decisions, I've always thought I, the thing that that I fear the most is regret. That's that for me. That's the biggest. I'd rather make an error of of commission to avoid regret. What could we change in the structure of our communities that could potentially lead to wiser decisions? If you think about it in the societal level, on the structural level. Well, I don't know enough. I think about. Um, European cities to be able to answer that question. And anything I say about an American city is a generalization too, but I would say that um, oftentimes decisions are made not for the benefit of the people who live there, but they're made for other other sorts of um, criteria. And I think oftentimes people who live in, in a neighborhood know better what they need and what would be useful for them. Um, and um, they should be asked more. So I think that giving people agency, you know, over their own outcomes and the outcomes of their neighbors, um, is a really good thing. And, and in my experience, you know, people, neighborhoods, people kind of come together and they, they get to know each other and they are concerned about each other's lives and each other's outcomes and they try to be helpful to each other. So I think that maybe more, you know, it's maybe more of a less of a psychology model or a political science model and more of a sociology model or like a community, you know, maybe it's more community psychology or something like that. But this idea that um, people should be given more agency over their own outcomes. Lisa, we're going to switch into um, to home fixtures for you now. So um, we're really interested in speaking about uh, some of your work. I, was, I mean, we have a limited amount of time, obviously, but there's there's a lot of it. Um, so we were going to, I was going to start with the book, 2017 book, How Emotions Are Made. Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting, Charles, because when I wrote the book, I thought I used to actually give talks that would start with, well, you know, most people think that you're born with these, you know, dedicated circuits wired into your, you know, little ancient beast that's buried deep inside your brain, you know, supposedly that we have, you know, one for anger, one for fear, you know, and I would sort of 
um, you know, paint the kind of classical essentialist view of emotion, which is very, very alive and well in psychology, I might add, and to some extent in neuroscience. And, um, and I just sort of thought this was the common sense view and that most Americans and not just Americans, I would say like most people in the West mm. had this view. And it turns out that's actually not true. Because I would get these people coming up to me going, I love your book. It's completely intuitive to me. This is how I've always thought of it. And I'd be like, really? That's so interesting to me. So inside out then. So is that like if people are going to the movie just to see the cute uh, things in the brain, it's like, ah, it's actually nonsense. Well, if you read, if you read the articles about it that were given by people at Pixar and also by the scientists who consulted on the film, they would not tell you that it was just a cute, silly movie. They would tell you that it was depicting real science. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Go read the articles yourself. That's what they say. And my answer is, you know what? I love Pixar films. I, I'm, I've seen every Toy Story film probably four times. Um, Pixar is great at putting emotions into everything, into cars, into robots, into a cockroach. I mean, a cockroach. Right in Wally, it's like the most adorable little creature who loves a cockroach, but it was great. So they put emotions into everything, including now into humans, in a way that I thought the depiction of the classical view is very clever. I thought their depiction of abstraction was really clever. It's wrong, but it was clever. Um, so you know, and I, I would also say that I mean, I love Roadrunner. And you know, uh, coyote uh, cartoons too. But I don't expect that I'm really going to learn how physics works from watching <laughs> uh, a Roadrunner cartoon. You know, um, so I think um, I think that the I think that Inside Out reflects a sort of a, a a Western or or a Eurocentric stereotype of how emotions work, and um, some people adhere to that stereotype. Some some scientists do, and average everyday people, you know what we would call in my house civilians, you know non <laughs> non academics, people who live in the real world, not the ivory muggles, town. muggles, or something. muggles. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, actually, I just read the Scholomance series with my husband, um, and uh, they call it's also about wizards, and um, they call them mundanes. Actually, oh, that's nice. Uh, mundanes. Yeah, mundanes, but. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, civilians. Um, um, some civilians, it that's their understanding. But I was really surprised by mm. the number of people who approached me, and still, I'm still, you know, that book has been in print for five years, and I'm still getting emails on a daily basis from people. It's not like hundreds of emails every day now. It's maybe mm. like five, mm. but still. Um, people who are grateful for the scientific framing of something that was more intuitive to them, which I think is cool. I think it's really neat. Okay. So it sounds like when my question therefore almost doesn't make sense. So I'm saying, you know, people had this essentialist view and tell us what was right or wrong about it. And you're saying, actually, maybe not so much. Like, Well, some people do. Some people right. do and they hold tight to their their assumptions and other mm. people don't. And I guess that's what I found surprising, actually. It was just the magnitude of the number of people who didn't. So would you be able to um, 
for people that were, hadn't spent much time thinking about either view, would you be able to describe what is different about what you were presenting in that book versus, say, the the inside out model? Well, the inside out model, I should say, even the, the inside out model doesn't even follow their own model. Okay, so the inside out model is that um, there is, um, you know, you have a little a little circuit in your brain which is depicted in this movie, right? By these little people, these little characters. Like, so you got one for anger, one for mm-hmm. sadness, one for fear, and so on. But even anger, the little character anger, doesn't behave. I mean, if you look at his facial movements, he's not always scowling or blowing his top. Sometimes he cries, sometimes he smiles, <laughs> sometimes he right. Like, well, a- anger shouldn't be any of those things by a, by the stereotype. It should just right, be right. you know blowing your. Co- blowing your stack. Sure. Um, but and every single one of the characters does this, right? They have this like huge range um, uh, of um, a huge variety. And so there are a number of ways to describe how the views are different. Um, but one way is that in the view that is, um, I guess, I don't want to say depicted by inside out because the actual characters don't depict this, but one, the, the sort of the, the view, um, the essentialist view is that, um, you know, anger is one thing. That's why we refer to anger. We, we talk about anger as if we know what anger is. Mm. It's a thing. Mm. It has a set of characteristics, not every single instance of anger, people scowl or they, you know, are, um, infuriated or, their heart, their blood pressure goes up. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. not every instance, but most instances or even most typical instances, that's the view. And that the view is really that, you know, you have an inborn circuit for anger. You were born with it. It came pre-programmed into your brain by genes. Um, and um, when it's triggered, you emit a uh, you know, there's a change in your body that's very characteristic. There's a change in your face that's very characteristic. There's a change in the way that you're experiencing the world that's very characteristic. It's not a one-to-one correspondence. It's not like every, it's not obligatory that you scowl every mm-hmm. time or that your blood pressure goes up every time or whatever. But but there's enough of a pattern there that you could measure someone's blood pressure or you could measure their face and you can diagnose you know, you could measure their brain and you could diagnose whether or not they're they're angry in an objective way and that this would hold for everybody around the world who has a neurotypical brain. That's the idea. And like I said, even the characters in Inside Out don't behave that way. Um, and instead, what the data show is that there there is no um, even prototypical pattern there's a stereotype that people have about what anger looks like and feels like and how it's caused. But the actual instances are highly variable. That is, sometimes when you're angry, you feel unpleasant, but sometimes you feel pleasant. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're angry, your blood pressure goes up, but actually sometimes it goes down. It all depends on the action that you're taking because your physiology is linked to your physical movements and the physical movements you make in anger depend on the situation. Mm. So even the brain basis of anger depends to some extent on your situation. And, and I should point out, I'm not saying it's all like random noise. There's structured variation in the evidence that is predictable. 
if you measure it properly. So this introduces a really interesting question. And that is, so if there's all this variability in how, in the instances of anger that you see in other people and what you yourself do in anger and how anger feels, how the hell do you know it's anger in a given instance? Like, what does that Mm -hmm. question even mean? And that's what the book attempts to explain. I, I, when I've spoken to people about this, um, the idea that how they, I mean, you know, correct me if I've got this wrong, but that there's, there's scope to interpret the physiological signals differently depending on the context and that. So you could, you could have exactly the same physiological signals, but you could be in a different context. Uh, and that could lead to a different interpretation, which would lead to a different emotion. Almost. I wouldn't say that it leads to a different interpretation, which leads to a different emotion. I would say your brain is a meaning maker. It's making meaning of signals. And when it does this all the time, as it's doing all the time, that Mm. is the emotion. Right. So there's a a mechanistic kind of Mm. um, mistake when we say, well, so these physiological signals happen and then we interpret them and then an emotion issues from that. You're basically saying A causes B causes C. Right. But actually the causation in that in that language is not correct as to the best of my current understanding. So the first thing is that the physiology is caused by the meaning making or back basically the physiology is the meaning making. That is when your brain makes this, it doesn't evaluate stuff and then create a set of signals. It's predicting the, based right. on what's happening now, it's predicting the set of signals that are about to happen in a minute from now. And it's creation of those predictions is the meaning making. It is the categorization. It is the construction it's the beginning of the construction of the of the emotion or of the event so i think this is something that people have a really hard time understanding because we're all used to thinking in this kind mm. of mechanistic way of like a causes b causes c but i don't think that that's correct and i should also say that and this is a really hard thing that okay and maybe um maybe it requires more explanation that we're used to thinking of objects having features or properties, right? Like an apple is red. But actually an apple isn't red. The property of redness is a relational property that exists because of the signals hitting your retina and also the way that your brain is making sense of those signals. Mm-hmm. So the redness isn't only in your brain and it's not only in the apple. It's actually in the relationship between the two. Mm. And this is the basis of what I'm saying. So in physics, right, the relational view of quantum mechanics is very similar to what I'm saying. Or, you know, an object doesn't have velocity. It only has velocity in relation to some other object. Mm-hmm. The the velocity isn't in the object. It's in the relationship between the two. And most of the mental features that we have as humans, that our brains construct, they construct in relationship to other signals. So what I would say, Charles, is that when your heart is racing, that signal that your heart is sending to your brain, the interoceptive signal of the heart racing, 
those signals don't have inherent psychological mm-hmm. meaning. Your brain creates that meaning in relation to those signals. And so what you experience is the combination or the relation, the properties of your experience are, are relational. They're not in the heart rate or just in your interpretation, as you would call it. Okay, so I want to dive in into two more features that are very prominent in your work, Lisa. And uh, they kind of continue the discussion that we just had. One of them is context, and the other one is the idea of concepts being linguistically mediated, that we sort of need this language in order to really uh, call it an emotion at the end. And that, of course, has certain constraints on the one hand and also opportunities on the other hand. So let's just just get into the context first. So you had this paper recently, last year, called Context Reconsidered. And in that paper, you talked about the role of context for emotional expression. And you also said that it's often misunderstood what we even mean by context. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is Lisa Feldman-Barrett's definition of context? Yeah, so I think context is a very unfortunate word, actually, because it implies that there are some signals which are central, and then everything else is just context, right? So, and the paper wasn't really about facial expressions. It was just that the science of facial expressions is a good example of the problem that we face in the following way. So, again, getting back to the inside out view of um, emotion. So the idea there, right, is that there's a there's a set of facial movements that express that are biologically inherent um, expressions of a particular emotion category. So you smile when you're happy, you frown when you're sad, you scowl when you're angry, and so on. And of course, you don't scowl every time you're angry. You don't smile every time you're happy. Sometimes you smile when you're not happy, but The idea in the inside out kind of view is that context, which means anything other than the inherent emotional meaning that that these signals are supposedly have, can modify, tweak, you know, really moderate the um, expression of emotion. And so they're given secondary, sort of a secondary causal um, status. So the real cause of your facial movements is some emotion, some set of emotion signals inside your brain, but then everything else that's going on could moderate that, could kind of tune it up or tune it down or, you know, somehow tweak what's going on, tweak the expression. And that's a different, a very different kind of view. It's a very mechanistic kind of 19th century, actually maybe even 17th century mechanistic view. It's some people refer back to Descartes, you know, they'll say this is a, this is a, the machine metaphor that D- Descartes used, right? That everything works like a machine. And so you can take apart the, you can take apart the emotional um, causes of facial movements and you can separately investigate them from all the other contextual factors, like um, whether you're, you know, um, interacting with someone who is higher in status than you or somebody who's subordinate to you. Those are moderating contextual factors. And you can kind of pull them apart and study them separately 
But a very different view of causation is what's what's called complexity, complexity theory, the idea that you've got multiple sources of causation, including context, what we would, you know, in this first mechanistic view, what we would call context. In this other view, we would say, well, everything, all of all of these other factors are also causal. And each of them on their own might have a weak impact on the outcome. So um, who you're interacting with, what time of day it is, how much you ate uh, earlier, how much sleep you got, um, all of these things are are actually equivalently important. They each on their own, if you study them independently, they might predict the outcome of your facial movements a little bit, maybe 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, if you're lucky, you know, that would be your effect size. But when you put them all together, they have these nonlinear interactions. They become, the causal force becomes more than the sum of its parts, is the phrase. And it's sort of like baking bread. You know, if you look at the proportion of salt in bread, it, by the weight of the flour, it's probably like 1%, if that. But God help you if you leave it out, you know, because it won't taste like bread. And when you when you have it in there, you don't even taste the salt. You, it's not like you taste, it's not like bread tastes salty, but you need it for the bread to taste normal. So you in a recipe, you take all of these causal factors, all these ingredients, and you put them together and they produce something that is more than the sum of their parts. And interestingly, in recipes, you don't usually consider, for example, the amount of hydration in your oven as an ingredient. You don't consider the temperature um, of your oven as the ingredient. You don't consider the amount of yeast in the air where you are as an ingredient. But all of these things actually are also causal features, causal factors in the complex causation that produces a loaf of bread. And so what I was trying to suggest in this paper is that this is also how the brain works because the brain is processing signals from the body and from the world. And also it's computing its own, it's generating its own signals, um, reinstating signals from the past and processing, creating new features out of the signals that it's it's taking in from the body and the world. And all of them are important. And in psychology, what, what most scientists do is they say, well, I, I'm really interested in the ones that are about vision. So I'm going to say those are the primary ones and everything else is context. But that's just how, you know, brains work when they're studying other brains. That's not actually how brains work. Brains are complex. You know, they have complex causation. That's what I was trying to, to suggest. Do you think that um, that science, you know, as it tries to strip things, you know, you, you can only sort of study one thing at a time so you can understand is it a simplification people have made because they don't really believe that you can pull things out, but you have to pull out. You, how do you study a whole system all at once? Here's what I would say. If you're, let's say you're a vision scientist, you care a lot about how vision works. I think that's complete. You don't have to care about everything in the world. You could care right. about how vision works, but measure the whole brain. Because the truth is, my truth is anyways, that primary visual cortex may be, First of all, it processes signals other than vision 
That's the first important thing to know. There's no question about this. And even, and it does it in, even when it's not important to the context, meaning that, you know, your you, auditory cues are very important to the context that you've constructed in your experiment. And so that's why the brain is, that's why primary visual cortex carries information about audition it that's not the case it always carries information about audition and we don't know why mm. i mean be curious about it right but anyways so the same thing with auditory cortex it carries information about vision so you should be measuring that you should be asking if you're interested in vision measure the whole brain mm. and do it with enough dense sampling of an individual subject that you can say something meaningful because there might be really good information that you're missing mm -hmm. by only focusing on, you know, the parts of the brain that you think are about vision, but they're actually not just about vision. So even if you're going to pick one thing to study, you have to consider all the possible places that it might appear. Yeah. And what's so cool yeah. about this is if you go back to like some of the classic discussions in social cognition, in social psychology, like the uh, Ross and Nisbet book, um, person's situation this is basically what they're saying it's just they're saying it with like slightly less i'm sort of placing it very very i'm sort of souping it up and you know putting it on steroids these points but those points are in that book um you know situationism construal i can't remember what they call oh, they call complexity i think they call tension systems but those are like 1980s ways or 1990s mm. ways of putting it but if you think about those ideas in today with with the conceptual tools we have today that's what they're saying right and i just think it's a really important message um that some parts of psychology have heard like in development for example and in ecological psychology but as a general paradigm for the field we're we're still back in this like mechanism you know billiard ball, A causes B sort of way of thinking about cause. That's fascinating. I, I'm, it was, kind of leads in neatly to my next question, Igor, um, which is, I understand as it, as our listeners will have, it'll be, have become apparent, but you're, you know, the philosophy of science is something you think about a lot and how it applies to approaching different psychological questions. Um, but as we're sort of exiting and, and wrapping up it, have you come across beyond what we've just discussed? Have you come across any sort of ideas from the philosophy of science that you think have utility for, you know, people in their everyday lives that they could they could be thinking about? The philosophy of science is really about questions like what is reality? What's in the world? How do I experience what's in the world? What does that experience actually tell me? What can I learn about my beliefs mm -hmm. um, about things by experiencing those things? So I think that philosophy of science has a lot to tell us just in everyday life, because in everyday life, we're experiencing things in the world and we're using those experiences to um, inform our knowledge of the world, of how we act and what we think. Um, and there are sort of traditional schools of thought in philosophy of science. And, you know, like, are you a are you a realist? Do you believe that your experiences of the world reveal to you how the world works? Or, 
you know, are you a relational realist? I mean, a traditional scientific realist or traditional realist, you know, believes that the world exists independent of your you and, but that your experience reveals to you how things are. Um, in, you know, this is what Lee Ross used to call the social psychologists used to call naive realism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but you can also be, um, you know, there's also idealism, right? That everything is in your head and the world doesn't exist separately from your head. It's only in your head. And that's often how people believe that they believe that like social construction or constructionism is, is idealism, but it's not. It's actually what I would call relational realism. This idea that what is real is it emerges from the interaction between what's in the world and what's in your head and also what's in your body um that you know that but there's nothing in the world that exists separately from like only in the world like only what is only in the world are is quanta of energy that's it that's what's there mm-hmm. and you know we experience the world in a particular way and we experience each other as part of that world in a particular way, because of the sensory, because of the bodies we have, the sensory surfaces we have, and and because of, you know, Igor, you were saying words. So I just want to make it really clear that I never, ever said that you couldn't have an emotion if you didn't have a word. I've actually said in the book, I'm really clear about this, You, what you need is a concept. You must be, your brain has to be able to make a category. Your brain has to be able to say, What's happening now is similar in some way to what's happened in the past because it has to use that information from the past to plan action in you know in the immediate future which becomes your present. You don't need a word for that. But if you want to communicate about your experience and if you want to be efficient at constructing categories words are extraordinarily helpful so i never said you couldn't have a concept without a word i said words are really 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 useful and once we have words even a three-month-old can use a word a made-up word to um, learn an abstract category to learn that a bunch of things which don't look the same, don't sound the same, are highly variable in their features, have the same function in a specific situation. And that's what emotions are. They're categories that the brain is creating on the fly that could, the instances could have different facial movements, could have different physical features. They could have different even mental features, but they're similar in some way functionally in a particular situation and the brain um, can create these sort of categories, conceptual categories on the fly for that, for that purpose. I I guess I am confused um, why you got so much um, feedback from people saying, I already thought this, because I think my experience, my experience myself and from people I spoke to is much more, uh, shaken by this idea. So this seems uh, newer. Yeah, the stuff about relational, no one has come to me and said, <laughs> not that. <laughs> stuff about relational, relational yeah. realism, that just makes so much That's sense. Just, yeah, intuitively. Uh, although, you know, when you do explain it like as an app, you explain the Apple example. Yeah. 
sometimes people, some people are, are real, they're traditional realists and they just, they were like, what do you mean that the apple, the apple is red. What are you talking about? Yeah. But, um, um, but, but I think when you say it in a different way, people understand it and it's intuitive. So if I say, well, Charles, you know, how I am with you is not maybe how I am with my kid. And it's not maybe how I am with my students. And it's not how I am with the person who just butted in line in front of me mm. after I've been waiting for 15 minutes mm. to check out at the supermarket. Mm. So um, I'm not one, I don't have one essence about me. I'm not one thing. I, I have, I can, you know, I have lots right. of selves. I can be lots of different people. Yeah. Um, and so how someone is with you isn't how they are. It's how right. they are with you. That's, right. People find that somewhat intuitive, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have thought about this when I think about how I am with each of my friends. I have a different relationship with each of them. And at times I've reflected on that and thought, does that mean that I'm there is one me somewhere and I'm being slightly inauthentic in different ways with different people? Or is that the, just the nature of relationships? It brings out different there's different kind of resonances in with different people so and that's where i've landed which does does align with what you're saying yeah and i think also it's intuitive to what i think people found intuitive about it was and again i was super surprised by this but this idea that if you can that you can um change how you experience a set of signals like you can experience sweaty palms and a racing heart as fear but you could also experience it as determination and you can also experience it as enthusiasm mm. um and that that's actually it's not as easy to do that as you would like it to be but it is actually doable if you practice and i think there are people who have had to deal with things um, in their lives um, and realized that they have more control over their experience than they thought they did. And the other thing which people responded to, which I was really grateful for, actually, is I, you know, because the point I also try to make is that response that, that let me just say that again, that the, one of the points I try to make is that control ha comes with some fine print. It comes with responsibility. If you're in control, a if you have a little bit more control over your experience, constructing your experience than you thought you did, then it probably means you also have a little bit more responsibility for what you experience. And what I really tried to make is that responsibility doesn't mean culpability doesn't mean you're to blame, right, right. but it, what it does mean is sometimes you're responsible for changing something only because you're the only one who can actually change it, right? right? You, other people can't do it for you. Only you can do it. And so it's not fair, maybe, mm -hmm. um, but it is what it is. And, and there's some optimism and like um, people find strength in that. So right. I think, I think that's what people resonate to that. You're not the victim of your emotions. You can't blame some inner beast for your behavior or your feelings. Um, even something like, and this is going to sound crazy, but it's actually true, a true story. 
that um, if you come to understand your mood, these like simple, you know, feelings of comfort, discomfort, feeling energized or feeling, you know, exhausted, you come to understand that they are linked to the metabolic state of your brain and your body, then you start to, you don't necessarily, you're a little bit freed from having to experience real intense negativity as depression or anxiety. You have a little bit more freedom to experience it as intense discomfort. And that may sound crazy, but it actually helps people. It helps people to categorize those experiences, or I would say categorize it differently, to categorize the sense data to create different experiences mm. that helps them in what they do next. If you're experiencing depression, as opposed to what my daughter now calls the emotional flu, you know, which basically means I feel like shit. I know there's nothing wrong, but I feel like shit and I'm tired and I, I feel miserable. What do you do if you think it's the emotional flu? You get a hug from your mom. Maybe you go to bed earlier. Maybe you have a massage. Maybe you have coffee with a friend. Maybe you complain a bit. But what you don't do is you don't um, look at what's wrong with your life and try to, you know, and like you try to turn down the troll in your head um, because, you know, you're experiencing those sensory cues differently. And I'm making it sound a lot. I'm just going to say, I'm making it sound a lot. Like it's just like you flip a switch and then you're, you know, you're better. And I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying it's one, it's one tool in a larger toolbox to help you cope with life. So just like to clarify there, are you thinking of it more as, as the concept of emotional granularity that sort of you and I sort of worked on, or is this more about sort of not having this loaded label of calling it depression that is associated with pathological uh, stigma related well, I think it's both. issues? I think it's mm -hmm. both. So first of all, I think that, you know, like the, I mean, this is a longer conversation, but I think, yeah. um, suffering should not be pathologized. <laughs> Um, I, I really, this, I feel this very strongly because first of all, it's common. Okay. It's common. So that means it can't be illness. Exactly. We always think of illness mm. as uncommon, like it's the mm. marked condition. And so it's very common. And, and I also think that it's useful to understand that it has physical basis. So there's a metabolic basis to illnesses that in this complex causation, some of the, um, they contribute to the mental features that we experience. And once you understand that, you just have more, you have more options available to you. So you're never going to be able to talk yourself out of a major depressive episode by categorizing differently. You need extra help for that. But this is a useful tool so that you never get into that major depressive episode. So it is emotional granularity, but I think it's just, I'm coming to now think of it more as granularity because sometimes 
you don't want to make an emotion out of something. You don't want to experience emotion. You want to experience something else. And so that's a longer conversation, but um, but I don't think the two aspects are are of what you said are are different. I, I think they're actually related to each other. Yeah, that it can be complementary. Yeah. Okay. Any final thoughts? I'm looking at the time, and uh, yeah, we've gone like over by sure. half an hour. Yeah, but yeah, yeah that's right. Final thought. Totally okay. fun to talk to you guys. This is like the best. <laughs> I'm having the best time. So, this is well, really, I appreciate really, that. Really fun. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Lisa. Uh, we were planning and trying to get you for a long time. We know you're very, very busy. I know. Very high demand. Uh, but uh, we're fortunate to finally be able to talk to you about emotions, wisdom, and everything else that's been happening, including philosophy of science. <laughs>